Hi and welcome to the Ordinary Saints podcast. It's been a little while but we are back with another episode. I'm Richard and I'm here with Sarah. can barely speak. <laughs> In case you can tell who that was, that was Sarah. So as you can tell, Sarah is quite croaky at the moment. It is the season of cold and flu and all of those joys of winter. Yep. And if you're wondering at all, I am not putting Richard at risk. I do not have COVID. This is post-viral crackliness along with a chest infection so here you have it (laughs) yeah in fact she was doing a rat test right as I came into her office I didn't make it into the office while this was happening so but fortunately it has come back negative so we're all good to go there have been daily rat tests happening so yeah you're covered you're all good so today I'm going to do most of the talking unfortunately I did point out to Sarah it's okay it might um, this podcast might be more of a lecture than a discussion but that's okay because I'm not very good at discussions and I'm better at just talking at people <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also it's doing a good service to me because it means I don't have to talk as much <laughs> so I'm going to share a little bit of some thoughts I have over a couple of different things that have happened since the last time Sarah and I uh, were in a room together doing this and it involves a few different things and the first thing is around some of the writing I'm doing on my thesis at the moment. I I promise I'm not going to do this often in podcasts because that's the last thing people want is to go, oh, you're doing a thesis and we have to hear about every strange thought you've been having. But I do have a particular thought and it's around Anglicanism and it's around Anglican identity and particularly Anglican identity in this part of the world, in our province. And our province is, of course, New Zealand, Aotearoa and Polynesia. And the reason we say it like that is because we're part of this thing called the Three Tikanga Church. And so that name for our province recognises that we're made up of Three Tikanga, Pakia, Maori and Polynesian. Yeah, and I'll probably come back and say something more about that in a, in a couple of minutes. So the great sort of founder of our province was a bishop. His name was George Augustus Selwyn. Strong name, very strong name. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Bishop Selwyn. He gets a lot of mentions a lot of the time as this important figure in our church history. And he was quite important in lots of ways. He's often People paint a picture of him as being this sort of austere English gentleman, and I don't think that's an entirely accurate perception. And the reason I say that is because in my own writing, because I'm having to write a little bit of a a very short history of the Anglican Church as as part of my thesis, because it's about Anglicanism, unsurprisingly. And so I've had to talk a bit about Bishop Selwyn, and the more I look into him and the more I read about him and the more I find out, the more I realise what a radical he was. Um, And he was a real forward thinker, and... That's really reflected in the way the Anglican Church in this part of the world came to exist at all. So he came out from the UK, he arrived here in 1842 or thereabouts, and he was given this title, Bishop of New Zealand. He was the only bishop to hold that particular title, but he came out here already a bishop, and his job was kind of to set up the Anglican Church in this part of the world. And the part I want to sort of focus on just really early on is that he did this thing in forming our province of uh, writing a constitution. So a constitution is a legal document that basically says this is how this church is going to run. This is what they're about. This is their founding principles. And he did a couple of really interesting things. Well, things that I think are interesting anyway, because, you know, I'm writing about this in my thesis, and I think it's interesting. But I'm hoping that other people out there are a little bit interested in our history uh, as a as a province. The first thing he did was 
he thought quite a lot about how different parts of the Anglican communion were, were unfolding and some of the changes were, were happening. And he called together um, a meeting. And in fact, he had several meetings leading up to the forming of the Constitution. But they ended up having this gathering at Judges Bay, which is where St. Stephen's Chapel is. And St. Stephen's Chapel was built for this particular event, the, the signing of a constitution. But the part I didn't realise was that they had had gatherings over the course of more than a month of people coming and talking about how is the Anglican church in this part of the world going to look? How's it going to run? How's it going to operate? And he didn't just have clergy come and gather and talk to him about it. He had anyone from the public could come and be part of this discussion. So that was the first thing. And there were were quite a lot of things that got talked about in this discussion around a constitution. There was a desire for a separate Maori church that was discussed at that time. It didn't come into being in that time, uh, but it was discussed. The role of women was discussed. Again, that didn't get included at that point in history. But the really radical thing is that he broke away from state control effectively. So in England, uh, the Anglican Church is still part of the political system. So there are members of the Houses of Lords, The English Parliament has all sorts of rights of say over what happens in the Anglican Church. And Selwyn was like, "Um, enough of that. Let's let's separate church and state here and let's see what the church can do when it's set free from being part of the secular political system. And back in England, they thought he was a bit treasonous for doing this. It was a bit offensive to royalty. Um, But that's what he did. So that was one of the, uh, again, one of the really crucial things he did was split us away from the English monarchy in particular, which I think was quite a radical thing. They did consider these other parts uh, like around recognising the indigenous church, as I say, didn't get over the line at that stage. They did consider the role of women, didn't get over the line just then. But I think partly because when radical things happen in the church, we go so far as a community and then we go, well, we've sort of done enough being radical now. We know we've got some more radical thoughts there, but let's just hold on to those and we'll we'll come back to them later on. And I, I think that's kind of how it played out. Hasn't it played out quite recently in that way? Oh, uh, it plays out that way over and over and over again <laughs> on all sorts of things where we take a big step forward and then we go, oh, that's, let's just stop and catch our breath, everyone. And this was certainly one of those moments, I think, where they decided to stop and catch their breath. But the other thing they did was that they came up with a governance model that included lay people. And this was the other really radical part of the constitution that was included. Because in England, they had a house of clergy and they had a house of bishops, which were effectively the house of lords, or part because they were lord bishops in England, who decided everything for everyone. Lay people had no voice in the governance of the church in England at that time at all. And so Selwyn was very keen to say, no, lay people are going to come in. And not only that, they're going to have an equal voice as the clergy and an equal voice with the bishops. So pretty major stuff. And interestingly, this model of synodical governance that he created actually became the Anglican standard across the world. So pretty massive stuff that he did. And I think what he did in doing some of these things was he kind of set a trajectory for our province to be kind of radical. And this is something that keeps playing out over the course of our life as a church is that there is a radical history that I think we forget. We forget it all the time, that actually there are all sorts of things that we have done and we have been first on and that we've innovated on that uh, we should be, I think, more mindful of and a little bit proud of. Um, And I'm going to point to some of those in in a moment. There was 
a general synod meeting I was at in 2014 in Waitangi and a very senior leader in the church. I'm not going to out who that person was. But when we were discussing some really difficult stuff, they made a comment of, why does this province think they should step out on this issue ahead of the rest of the Anglican Communion? And I was really affronted by that statement. Uh, And I wish I'd known this history a bit better and had formulated these thoughts better at that time, because my thought is, who are we not to? Actually, our history has always been a radical one, a one of stepping out in faith, of trying new things and seeing how it goes. So I mentioned a couple of those things. Um, women did come to be included in the decision-making role of, of General Synod, particularly and in diocesan synods that happened in the 1920s. So still that sort of late suffrage kind of era is when that the church finally got on board and said, yes, inclusion of women around that. We know that women are then included in ordination here in New Zealand in the late 70s. Again, we're the first, one of the first churches to do that. So there were some women ordained in America and right across the road from us here in 1977, um, three women were the first to be kind of legally ordained um, in the sense of an entire church had said, yes, this can go ahead and, and those women became priests. We're one of the first provinces to have a female diocesan bishop Um, There were female bishops in the Anglican Communion before here, but not diocesan, so they were effectively like assistant bishops that had had been appointed in other parts of the Communion. But Bishop Penny Jamison was elected as a diocesan bishop in Dunedin, and so she was the first there, and we've had women diocesan bishops since her, uh, which is a good thing. But the thing I sort of wanted to come around to today, and I'll tell you why it's on my mind, is that in 1992, we had another go at this thing of the Anglican Constitution. And it was a big rewrite, and it came out of a lot of discussion, primarily around the Treaty of Waitangi, and how we could recognise in our church structure the role of tikanga Māori and how we could make provision for them to be a self-determining church within the Anglican tradition. And there were lots of different debates around how that could happen and how that was to take place. And that discussion progressed a really long way. And we were heading towards kind of a bicultural partnership recognised in the form of the constitution. And at the last minute, sort of Polynesia came and said, hang on, we're part of this province too. How does this make sense? And so it got pushed out from bicultural to kind of tricultural uh, in a sense and so Polynesia became recognised as well as being a separate tikanga. Now there were some really big questions about that at the time particularly because a lot of work that was happening was happening around biculturalism. How do Māori and Pākehā coexist as partners in light of the Treaty of Waitangi? How do we do that better? And that was what the discussion was. So Polynesia kind of was an awkward part of that puzzle in that time and there was some difficulty around that but I think in hindsight it's fair to say the model has worked quite well. So now why this is really on my mind. A couple of weeks ago I went to a funeral for a man named Bruce Davidson. Did you know Bruce at all? I did. I first met Bruce in 2003 and in that time he was the Chancellor for the Auckland Diocese and what that means is he was basically the senior lawyer for the church in this part of the country because we have all sorts of church law that governs what we can and can't do. They're all laws we've made up for ourselves, but there's a tradition of that and of interpretation. And he was the guy who said what was what. And at the time of constitutional change, Bruce, was he was the chancellor then as well. <laughs> he had been kind of enlisted to really help bring together a lot of the different thoughts around biculturalism and was one of the kind of key architects in drafting this new constitution. It's a pretty significant piece of work. I got to know Bruce really well because fortunately 
Um, first I knew him, he was, as I say, he was the Chancellor of the Auckland Diocese. He was also on the Board of Oversight for our Theological College, which is where I was at the time. But years later, he became a parishioner of mine in the last church I was vicar of, and I was vicar there for 10 years, so I was his vicar for 10 years. And through all of the different things that I've been involved with in the politics of the church, Bruce was someone I could go and talk to, ask for all sorts of advice. And yet, in spite of all those conversations we had had, I never quite realised how instrumental he was in this particular part of forming Anglican identity in this part of the world. And it was really great to be at his funeral. It was great to hear quite a lot of acknowledgement of the huge, huge contributions he made to our church. And sadly, I don't think he really got his due, partly because, uh, I'll just be honest about this, he uh, had been involved in some business ventures at the end of his career that hadn't gone very well, Uh, like he was part of a business that collapsed and when businesses fall apart it can be pretty traumatic and bad for lots of people including him and that's part of his story and sadly uh, it it tainted a little bit of his legacy but I just wanted to in this space kind of remember that there and uh, just recall that there are lots of people in the life of our church who have formed this thing that we call the Anglican Church that I'm a part of and it's been formed in some really interesting, unique and radical ways And we're indebted to those people. And sometimes those people sort of pass into history sort of unacknowledged and I don't want this to happen on this occasion because I think he's someone who I really cared about who played a very significant role in a church structure that I'm really grateful for. And I think for me, so there are two things I guess I wanted to share with you about this particular learning is one, what a radical history. Like what a history we can be proud of as Anglicans in this part of the world. The first constitution of its kind, and we followed up with a second constitution, which is so different, which is truly seeking to honour Indigenous peoples in a model of partnership that brings dignity to all. And say what you like about the Tikanga Church, because there are people who are sort of like, I don't know that this model works, I don't think it's all it could be. Those criticisms are fair and valid, but what an aspiration What an idea, and that's why I'm still on board with it, right? Because I still think the aspirations are so good and so genuine that they're worth pursuing. So there's this radical history of the church, and as I say, it includes all sorts of things, recognising an indigenous church within the Anglican tradition. And in fact, we ended up with two of them. We ended up with Polynesia and Maori, you know, something that was sort of unforeseen but has been a real gift to us. There's the way that we've included women as well, which I think might not be, have been as timely as many would have liked, but are still things that can be celebrated and should be celebrated. I think there are really great things too. But the other thing that I just wanted to point to is that my involvement in the church has meant I've got to be friends with people like Bruce. And I can't imagine any other organisation that I could be a part of where I would get to build relationships with someone so different from such a different walk of life, generationally completely different generation to mine. He was, you know, as old as my parents, and yet we were friends. So anyway, that's a little bit about my friend Bruce. Is Sarah going to croak in with anything? (laughs) I hope you leave that in the the podcast recording. Yeah, those are beautiful reflections, Richard, and and a beautiful story of our history, which, yeah, it, it is quite radical when you look back. And 
you know, thinking not just about the history of that, but also the constitutions and how they've enabled us to to continue to grow and be the church that we are today and that we continue to aspire to be. Mm. Um, because, you know, I don't think, like you said, this work is finished. I think it's an ongoing aspiration, but equally it's a pretty awesome opportunity. I know personally I've talked to, you know, Episcopal priests uh, overseas and they just sort of look at, our church and our province and in awe at the kind of work that we've been able to do because of the the amazing work of those that have gone before us and so yeah there is I do hold you know some some pride in that thinking what an awesome opportunity I have to be to be a part of that as a as a female priest as well you know like I love that I love that I can follow out my vocation here in the Anglican church and that you know I'm respected as seen alongside my male colleagues as as being a full priest, not just a, a priestess or a, mm. you know an assistant or anything like that. So yeah, I have a lot to be grateful for. You know, for the people you've mentioned, Richard, but also for the women who've like gone before me and who've done some pretty radical stuff too, um, and have kind of fought the good fight, so to speak. Yeah, so that I can be here today and I can offer the ministry that I do, and you know, for and with others around me. So yeah, it's amazing history. Yeah, there are a lot of people we're all indebted to. I think you point to something really important though as well, which is that thing of, yeah, we've got a radical history, but actually we need a radical future too. And I think that's probably why I feel enthusiastic about this topic, right? Is because actually it's about knowing who we are and I'm part of all sorts of sort of political machinations of the church and often people cite things like the constitution as being this kind of unerring document that should never be changed and oh but it's historic and it's our tradition and again I think if you really think about the character of someone like Selwyn who was a pioneer who said yes I know how the church has run up until this point but we need to do it differently that there is a spirit of change in that and I think he would be the first person that if if he was a part of the discussions we're having today around these things he would be saying well we just made this all up And if you need to change it and make up something different so that you can do this thing of spreading love and goodness and joy and God's work in the world, heck, you should do that. You'll be the first to say that. I'm absolutely convinced of this. I agree. And when, you know, something that I say often is, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, Mm. right? And we do, all of us, we, we all do. And I think in the church, it's no different. Why, you know, we're standing on these shoulders, right, of these incredible people that have gone before, but we're not standing on their shoulders for nothing. You know, we're not standing on their shoulders for the sake of saying, hey, look whose shoulders I'm standing on. You know, we're actually standing on their shoulders to do something and to, and to take something to a new place, to take something in a new direction because of the initiatives that have gone before and the legacies that have gone before. So I think that's a really good point, Richard, you know, that you bring that we can't just glorify the past to the point where we become stagnant. You know, we need to remember their legacy and remember, hey, we're still in a changing world. We're still learning new stuff all the time and not just about society or, you know, secular stuff, quote unquote, but actually about God. We're learning more stuff about God all the time and God is still speaking and and saying new things to us, right? So if we're going to be a learning organism, which I hope we can be, mm. um, then we need to we need to keep that in mind. You know that we have the privilege to sit on the shoulders of of giants. But what are we going to do with that opportunity? So I actually have a poem here, which I've been reading the last few days uh, and I'm thinking about, and I think it fits in really nicely with what you've just said. It's called "I Am My Ancestor's Dream," and it's by Nikita Gill. 
and it goes like this. Your ancestors did not survive everything that nearly ended them for you to shrink yourself to make someone else comfortable. The sacrifice is your war cry. Be loud, be everything, and make them proud. That's amazing. In true Anglican style, we should probably put that on a plaque somewhere, eh? (laughs) (laughs) I'd go to that church. (laughs) same. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, thanks for indulging me, Sarah, because I just wanted to share those thoughts, particularly about Bruce today, because he was a good person, and I miss him. Uh, And we're all benefiting from the church he helped make. Absolutely. Thanks so much for sharing, Richard, and also for taking the load off my voice today, (laughs) which isn't in the best space. (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome. Thanks.